One of my favorite responsibilities as a pastor is officiating weddings. Uh, I've officiated a lot of weddings. A lot of you are in this room. I did your wedding. And it is a special moment for me to get to counsel, to get to shepherd through that premarital season around our dinner table, uh, to get to officiate the wedding, and, and then to be able to check in on you from time to time and see your, your marriage grow. It's really a special thing. One of the things I do in the weddings I officiate uh, is I like to ask uh, I, I give these surveys out, and it's about five questions or so. It's nice and short. But what I do is I, I, I give these questions, and they're simple questions, like what is something that your partner does that says, I love you? Or what is something that your future spouse says that, uh, that, that shows you they care for you? What are the things you love about your future spouse? It's, it's simple questions like that, and then what I invite them to do is, is not just to give me a quick answer, but, but I'm looking for the cheese effect, if you know what I mean. I, I, want the, I want the mushy, gushy stuff of the heart. I want to know what's really, if you're going to be, you know, Shakespearean in love, kind of writing this stuff down, I want to know all the good stuff that you might keep hidden. And then what I do is I, I try to bring some of that into the, the wedding itself, and I try to share with those who are in attendance this is what they think about each other. These are the little pieces of their relationship that you might not all know about, but it, it's special. Look at the way God's working in their marriage already. Now, there's another part to this that is a little bit of a sneak that, I, that, I, that a lot of my folks don't know about. Some of them do. After a number of years of marriage, sometimes marriages hit conflict where things begin to break down. Uh, any number of things can happen. Uh, they, they can just be an argument. Sometimes you don't even know what the conflict was. Sometimes it's because of families of origin. Sometimes it's because of something happened in a relationship. Sometimes people are just changing and you don't know what to do with the change. And, and, and another part of my favorite part of being a pastor is getting to counsel through difficult places in marriage. And my wife and I will oftentimes have marriages around our dinner table and we'll just labor in prayer together, listening, trying to understand what, where's the breakdown happening? What, what's going on here? And sometimes what we'll do, if we have the chance, is we'll pull out those original questions and we'll have them read them to each other. And it's all that mushy, gushy stuff of what you thought about that person when you were engaged to them and you were looking forward to marriage. And, and, and there's this kind of special point you can imagine. You can almost imagine it where there's all this conflict and you're, all you can see is the rock in front of you where all of a sudden, you have this chance, whether you do it around our dinner table, you do it back at home. Sometimes I'll send them home with the questions. I'll have them read them on their own to each other. You have this chance to sit there and read to your spouse all the ways you really love them and all the ways that your marriage has this strong base of how you love each other and how you care for each other. It's interesting. <clears throat> Every follower of Christ is in a marriage whether you're actually married right now to, to a spouse, when you became a follower of Christ, you stepped into a marriage with Jesus Christ. He is the groom and the, the church is his bride. And there's this covenantal relationship that is built on the love of Christ for you that's the foundation of who you are and who we are as a church family. And the reality is, is that sometimes rocks come Unexpected challenges come in your relationship with the church, in your relationship with Jesus, just like a marriage here. And, and sometimes what happens is you get, you as the bride of Christ, every one of us, we get so focused on the rock that's before us that we lose track of the covenant 
that God's entered into us and the sweetness and the goodness of what we've been invited into. And from time to time, it's really important for us to recognize this is a rock that does not define who I am. This is a challenge that is, that is overcomable because of the covenant I've entered into. There is a relationship of love, and I've got to get back to that. You see that? We're beginning a brand new sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in the New Testament. If you're with us visiting today, you're joining on a really great day. We're kicking off a whole new sermon series. We're going to go verse by verse through this book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and so our hope with this is that this would be really a transformative season. It's going to take us about nine months to get through this entire book. Uh, and if you're new uh, to Park, one of the reasons we study verse by verse through the Bible like this, through books of the Bible, is because as you'll see with 1 Corinthians, there's going to be a lot of topics on here that are going to push us to some uncomfortable places. Uh, Paul is going to deal with all sorts of cultural issues that were happening in first century Corinth at the time that as we re reflect on those first century issues and then draw parallels to our 21st century issues, we're going to find that not a whole lot's changed. Uh, the issues are the same. And one of the biggest things he's going to be dealing with are that there are these divisive conflicts that are happening in the first century church in Corinth. There's all these reasons to divide, all these reasons to be angry at each other, all these political differences, all these leadership differences, all these opinion differences. And Paul, over and over and over again, is going to draw them back to their identity in Jesus Christ. Get back to that covenant. Who are you with the Lord? A little context for you. Okay, here's, just so we understand Corinthians. This is a book of the Bible. Now, when we talk about the Bible, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible has 66 books, Old and New Testament. The Old Testament books, 39 of them, were, were completed before Jesus Christ ever was born or stepped foot on, in, in, in the flesh, okay? Jesus existed before the foundation of the earth, but before he took on flesh in Jesus, in his form, that's the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament, 27 books that were written after the life and death of Jesus Christ. One of these books is called 1 Corinthians. Now, we call it a book, but originally it was a handwritten letter. So what you're being invited into is to read with us and study this handwritten letter that was from the Apostle Paul, who we'll learn about today, written to a very specific church. Just like we're a church in Chicago, he wrote to the church in Corinth, Corinth is a city you could visit today in Greece. It's still there, okay? And Corinth is in Greece. Now, it was actually more Roman at the time. It had its heyday in terms of Greco-Grecian culture well before Paul wrote this, but Corinth had been revived during the time of Paul, during the time of Jesus, and it was very Roman. In fact, some of the names you're gonna be introduced to as we go through, they're very Romanish names. You'll see they kind of all end with that toe, like, you know, they have that, that's how Roman names, they all end in the O uh, name. But you'll see that as we go through, it's very Roman in culture. And what I'm gonna try to show you today is that some of these themes we're coming with, uh, we're gonna come across in 1 Corinthians, they're timeless. The challenges they were facing were timeless. Today particularly is just the introduction. So this is a letter. In the old days, letters had a very formal way you wrote them. They were handwritten, and they had a very specific way of introducing themselves and a very specific way of ending. Today we get the introduction. And I think Paul's big idea in this introduction is very simple. It's something like this. It all begins with your identity in Jesus Christ. Simple as that. It all begins with your identity in Jesus Christ. 
Okay, we're gonna get through verses one through 17 today. If you got your Bibles, well, you all should have your Bible with you as you got your little journal with you today. Let's begin with verses one to three, okay? Begins this way. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pause right there. Very typical way to start a letter. In fact, if you look through the Apostle Paul's other letters in the New Testament, they often have a very similar greeting to that. It's introducing who is this from? Who's it going to? Who's the author? Who's the recipient? Now, he introduces himself, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Who's Paul? Let's get a little history for you. Make sure we understand and remember who Paul is and what his story is with the church at Corinth. There's history here that we know from the Bible. The apostle Paul was once called Saul. That was his name. And he was a leader in a Jewish sect called the Pharisees. We encounter the Pharisees all through the life of Jesus. We read about them in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. They were a particular studious group of Jews who loved the law. They were those who kept the law with the most religious zeal and fervor. And so when this new kind of sect of what was originally a sect of Judaism broke out that was called the church, called Christianity, in the first century it was called the way. That's what Christians were called, the way. Christians just means Christ ones. When the sect of Judaism broke out, called the way, that believed that Jesus was the Messiah, well, Saul, this Pharisee in Judaism, wanted nothing to do with it. He believed that it was a great break with what was historic Judaism. And he went out and he began to persecute all Christians. In fact, the very first Christian we know that was ever killed for his faith is the deacon Stephen, who we read about in the book of Acts, a few books earlier than this, And that man, it says that when he was killed, they laid his cloak at the feet of Saul. Saul is the first man we know that killed a Christian for religious purposes. Now, we got our global pastor with us today. All around the globe, there are Christians being killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We don't get that in the modern day news, but thousands upon thousands continue to be killed for their faith in Jesus. This was not uncommon to be killed for your religious purposes back then. Saul was at the forefront of this zealous religious persecution of Christians in that first, that first few years when, when Christianity was exploding on the scene. Then one day Saul is on this road and, and the risen Jesus appears to him. We get this in the book of Acts as well, where Acts chapter 9, the resurrected Jesus appears to Saul, blinds him for a moment, says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you hunting my people down? And Saul has this incredible conversion story where he falls on his knees, he accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, he believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, and Saul gets a new name. It's a true conversion. Just like Jesus says, you will be born again. He gets given a new name. He becomes Paul, who becomes the Apostle Paul. He goes through a bit of an internship process for a few years as he begins to learn the scriptures in a new light, seeing Jesus through all of it. And then Paul becomes a missionary. 
He begins to travel, and, and we read this in the book of Acts. If you want to understand how the church began to grow in the first century, that's the book of Acts. It's the fifth book in your New Testament. And, and in the second half of Acts traces the missionary Paul on his missionary journeys. And what he did on his missionary journeys is he went from town to town throughout the, the Mediterranean world in the first century, all the major cities, and he planted churches. He'd go into a city like Corinth, he'd start preaching. A handful of people would believe, and then he'd plant a church. He'd invest in them, and then he'd leave them and go to another city. Then he'd go to Thessalonica. He'd preach, raise up a church, and then leave them. And so he planted all these churches. One of them was Corinth. He spent a year and a half with these people, a year and a half pastoring them, shepherding them, leading them, raising up other leaders. And then he left a church much like this, just like this. And he'd been gone for some time. And then he gets this letter. And he gets a letter, and we know it's a letter because in chapter 1, verse 11, we'll read this. Haven't gotten to this part yet, but just read verse 11 with me. Paul says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So apparently, there was a woman in the church named Chloe who sent a letter to the Apostle Paul saying, Hey, there's a bunch of division in our church, Paul. What do we do? Remember, they didn't have email back then, they didn't have airplanes back then. Paul was wherever he was at the time, but they got a letter to him and they reached out to the one guy who had helped found the church because there's all this division happening. So Paul writes this letter back to them. He has an intention to eventually get back to them, to pastor them in person, but back then, that's not as easily done as it is said. So he writes this letter to speak into the life of this church that he loves, that he had helped plant, to help heal some of the brokenness. Not only that, but in the letter that Chloe sent, they asked a bunch of theological questions and cultural questions. How do I know that? Well, chapter seven, which we're gonna get to in a handful of months, actually, chapter seven begins this way. Now, Paul writes, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's, he's addressing them, and then he gets to a part of his letter, he says, okay, now, let me address those questions you asked me in your letter you sent me. And then he spends the second half of the book of 1 Corinthians responding to cultural questions the Corinthian church had that they couldn't figure out theologically. And so he gives them responses to them, okay? Now, a little bit about Corinth. It says, Paul, by the will of God, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Saucens to the church of God that's in Corinth. It's a specific church in a specific place. Corinth was a major metropolis in the first century in Greece. It's right, it's a harbor town, and so it had access to a lot of diversity. Harbor towns always had a lot of incoming trade, a lot of people from other nations who were coming into there. In a sense, it was a lot like Chicago. This was a place where the intellectual elite would gather. Every year, they held the Isthmus Games, which was kind of like an Olympic-type style athletic competition. It was known across the world as the place where the best athletes would come every year and compete for the best prizes. This was an intellectual hub. It was a place where you went to make a name for yourself. It was a place where you went to begin a career and try to make it with the big guys. Let me read to you one historian how he described Corinth at the time. He said, the ideal of the Corinthians was the reckless development of the individual. (laughs) Can you hear 21st century Chicago in this already? The reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means the man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust, the athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength are the true Corinthian types. In a word, 
the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. Now, that might as well be a description of the city we're living in. People are, people are, are fallen. And for thousands of years of human history, the plague of sin has worked its way through the human experience in very similar ways. And when it comes to cities, this is our context. We're we're a church in a city. When it comes to cities, cities have always had a very similar flavor. It's where you go to achieve. It's where you go to see who, what what is the, the greatest version, the most successful version of you that you can possibly be. And it's the place where all sorts of vices Blossom. Every opportunity you want to find yourself in a dark and dirty place, you can find it in Corinth and you can find it in Chicago. All right? Now, listen to how he describes this church. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Don't miss the individual words. If I were you and I had a pen right now, I would underline and circle that word sanctified in Christ Jesus. Normally, when we talk about the word sanctification, that's a churchy word, but what it means is the, the, the slow maturing process of a follower of Christ from the moment you believe until the day the Lord takes you home, that journey of putting off vices and putting on the virtues of Christ and becoming more like Jesus. That's called sanctification. It's growing into Christian maturity. That's actually not how he uses the word here. He uses it as a completed event. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's what the church is. he's, He's responding and he's writing to this church and one of the first things he does is he says, this is who you are. You are sanctified in the Lord Jesus. What does that word mean? It means to be made holy or maybe to consecrate or maybe to be set apart. It's this idea that God has done something to you much like what Saul had had done to him. He had this wild conversion story where he went from one man named Saul to another man named Paul. And the difference between those two people were night and day. It's not the same person anymore. It's a new heart beating in a new way. It's a whole new identity. And he says, look, you've been sanctified. Now, now there's two types of people in this room right now. I'll, I'll use my wife and me as the example of these two different types. My story is that I I did not know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, but met him when I was 17. I had traces of of religion growing up. I I had traces of understanding little bits of Christianity, but but I did not know Jesus as my Lord and Savior until I was 17. My story is a little bit more clear-cut in terms of being like Paul's, where I can see this, this season of my life where God just put me on a whole nother path, and if you knew me back then, that you, you would definitely say there was, there was this wraith and then it kind of turned. It became this new wraith. Some of you have a story like that. It's very clear cut when God got a hold of you. Others of you have stories more like my wife, which is my prayer for all three of my daughters. As far back as my wonderful wife can remember, she grew up in a family that knew and loved Jesus and, and her story is one that she grew up knowing and loving Christ as long as she can remember. Now both those of you in this room have a story more like mine and those of you who have a story more like my wife's, both of you have that exact same history. There was a moment, even if it was as young, and you, don't, you barely even remember that moment, there was a moment for every follower of Christ. No one is born into Christianity. 
You are sanctified. God gets a hold of you at some point and turns you from who you were to who you are. He changes everything about you. That word sanctified, it's actually the same root word that he uses in the very next phrase. He says, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of Jesus. Saints is the same root word as sanctified. It's that root word holy. That's where we get our word holy from. It's a holy one. Now in the Midwest, with with a deep Catholic upbringing and and a history in the Midwest, some of you think of saints as super-Christians. It's those people who have accomplished something that seems almost impossible to accomplish. That's not the biblical idea of a saint. And that's very important. Every follower of Christ is a saint, is a holy one, is one who has been been sanctified, who has been changed from who you are and made holy as a result of what Jesus has done in your life. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Where is Paul starting here? He's about to get into all sorts of conflict, all sorts of brokenness. In the first few verses, he's gonna get into divisions in the church. Where does he begin? Identity. Who are you? You are sanctified. You are a saint. We're gonna talk about division. We're gonna talk about culture. We're gonna talk about sexuality. We're gonna talk about how to step into brokenness in the culture around you. Where do I begin? Where does it all start? Identity. Who are you? Sanctified. That's who you are. Who are you? You are a saint. Own it. You see where Paul roots all of this? Even in his greeting, he's got identity language. Even in his his greeting, he's getting right down to the root. Who am I as a person? I'm a saint. I've been made holy because of what Jesus has done to me. Now, we live in a moment of history where uh, we are told to find our identity in a thousand different places, okay? Some of you have heard of the the language identity politics, right? What's identity politics? Identity politics is where, for political means, in terms of how you vote for government people, we think of people in terms of blocks, right? Right? We think of this racial block or this socioeconomic block or this, uh, you know, where you live in the country block. And and we fit people into these identity blocks and we think of how they're going to respond, how they're going to behave, how they're going to step into all sorts of different things in these blocks of people. And this concept of thinking of people in terms of this other identity is all through culture. It's not just how we do politics. We literally think, even in the church, when we think of how people are going to respond to certain issues, I see this come up all the time. We think in terms of identity blocks. But, but look at what Paul does. He breaks through every block that could possibly be. He says, whatever your identity was before you became a follower of Christ, that, that has no bearing on you now. That, that doesn't mean your whole story gets erased. It doesn't mean that 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 part of your story is not still a part of you. Your upbringing doesn't matter. All of that has value and a place at the table and a place in the conversation. Certainly, it's part of the church, and yet, it is no longer the primary identity. There is an entire new primary identity. Whatever your story was, whoever you were, however you fit into a block before you met Jesus Christ, you have a new identity. You are sanctified, and you are a saint. With who? With all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. What's he saying with that? Look, I'm only in verse two, 
okay? This is, this is so important here. He's saying that in all places, every nation, in all places in a city like Corinth, where you've got the nations coming through the ports and doing their church and all the different ways or doing their life and all the different styles and cultures, every person in all places who calls on the name of Jesus Christ, primary identity, Jesus, that binds you with every person. You look across a room like this, there's a lot of diverse backgrounds in a room like this. There's a lot of diverse heritages, ethnicities, cultural upbringings. There's a lot of people who have had a lot of different parts of their stories. Some of you I know the pain you've overcome in your life. Some of you came through, and I'm not saying this quickly, whenever I bring up this kind of stuff, I, I don't mean to just spit it out like I'm rolling through something. I, I, I know your story. You had abusive parents. You've overcome illness that kind of defined your childhood. Maybe not even your childhood. Maybe you've had illness that kind of defined a whole season of your adulthood. Some of you have been through divorce. Some of you have been through death of a loved one. Some of you are in the midst of all types of things that, that in a sense, have a very real way of marking you and your journey and your story. All of that is part of who you are. And yet there's, there's something even more foundational to your identity that unites you with your brothers and sisters in Christ around this room. Beyond your story, beyond your challenges, beyond your hardships, beyond the abuse you've endured, beyond the scars you have, beyond everything that you have been through, there's something that binds you. And it's bigger than every other part of your story. It is the root of who you are. Here it is. You've been sanctified, and you are a saint. Oh, if you begin to identify that way, it will change the way you engage with the world. What if for, what if for a moment you owned that and, and then you began to face the challenges you're going through and the first, every time you stepped into something big in your life, whatever it was, even if it was internal in the church and we got plenty of that to work through, what if every single time you, you said, I'm a saint, I'm a holy one, the Lord the Lord, for some reason I'll never understand, chose me, anointed me, set me apart, gave me the, the love of the Messiah, adopted me into the family of God, and then you looked at another Christian who you had a disagreement with, and then you said, that's a saint. They've been sanctified. What would we do with the conflicts we have if that was the first move you had as a follower of Christ? Can, can you just see them or can you just see yourself getting over them in a different way? Can't you just visual? It's, it's kind of like visualizing that married couple telling themselves how much they love each other. You can just see the conflict disintegrating. It's like, you guys, what are you arguing about? Like, you got to work through it. I get it. But remember who you are, okay? This is the root of everything. You, if you're a follower of Christ, Jesus Christ has changed you. He took your sin upon a cross. He shed his blood I get this. He died for you. God sent the Son to take your place on a cross, and that changes everything about you, and it's the root of your identity. You're a child of God. That changes everything. Now, he moves into this prayer. It's still part of the greeting. 
Listen to this prayer, verse four. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Before I even preach this, I want you to see if you can read through this and if you've got a pen, circle all the identity language stuff that you see in these next few verses. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think there's at least 12 identity markers in there. I'm gonna give you four of the biggies, all right? Number one, if you're a follower of Christ, you've been given unmerited favor, unmerited favor. That's verse four. What does he say? For you, because I give thanks always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you. Grace is unmerited favor. It's you got a gift that you did not deserve. You, you, you have, you, no one in this room gets to say you're a Christian because you earned it. Nobody. No one in this room gets to say they got their life in order because you earned it and because you just figured out how to get your life in order. You received grace upon grace when Jesus got a hold of you, and that is part of your identity. You're a saved one. I, have, I, I shared with you last week, I was in a pretty terrible car accident just a week ago, and this whole last week, I, I've been, I, I, my wife, I, I feel like I just keep turning to my family and saying, I just feel like I am a recipient of unbelievable mercy, that, there, that my body is in place, my mind is in place, and I, I, I don't want to waste a second of this chance I've been given. And it's not just those who have come through a car wreck that get to say that. If you're a follower of Christ, you have received grace upon grace. Own that. Identity level. Own it. Unmerited favor. That should change you. Let it sink in. You're not who you were. You've been given unmerited favor. Number two, you got undeserved gifts. Undeserved gifts. Now, this is in two places. Let me read to you from verse six. Um, Verse five, that in every way you were enriched. That word is kind of uh, hinting at gifts. But then he goes on, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. He's, he's, he's talking about spiritual gifts, which he's gonna pick up way later in chapter nine and chapter 14. Spiritual gifts are when you become a follower of Christ and you get plugged into a community like this, God pours out all the different gifts spiritually that are gonna be needed to make a church thrive. All of them. Here's what that means. Any need that this church has individually or communally, the answer to that need is right here sitting in this, in this room. We don't, need any, we don't need anything from outside of this. God has enriched us. He's overflowed us. He's given every gift you will ever need to, to overcome every obstacle in your life through the community that's around you. Some of you have supernatural gifts, and those need to be poured in the church. Some of you have more hidden gifts, like the, like the gift of serving, or administration, or of leadership, of, of teaching. All of these gifts, every gift the church needs to thrive, and to grow, and to see us grow more and more like Christ, it's all sitting in these chairs right now. We don't need any outside consulting services. We, it's all right here, identity. He has given us gifts. That's how much he loves you. It's, it's language like the way I give my children gifts. And I give them what they need to thrive. 
I take care of him. He's poured it all into you. You've got a father who loves you so much that he's given you every gift you need. Identity. Identity. Unmerited unmerited favor, undeserved gifts. Next one, verse eight, unwavering hope. He's given you an unwavering hope. Verse eight, he says, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. How are you gonna sustain your Christian faith and hope to the last day, the day the Lord takes you home or he returns? It's not because you got the muscle. It's not because you're strong enough. The only reason you're gonna call yourself a follower of Christ by the time you put your head on your pillow tonight is because of the unwavering hope you have in Jesus Christ. Because he is strong enough to sustain you. He walks with you. He is the one that perseveres on your behalf. It says that he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for the saints right now. How are you sustaining your faith right now? Because the Lord Jesus knows you by name and is interceding for you. I'm getting to identity here. What's your story? Who are you? How do you overcome conflict? You are one that's been shown unmerited favor. You are one that's been given undeserved gifts. You are one that has an unwavering hope. This salvation you have cannot be taken away from you. Nothing that happens to you this side of heaven can dent or damage your salvation in one inch. Nothing. It's secure. The theological term, of, term for it is, uh, is the perseverance of the saints. The saints will persevere towards the end. Not because they have the endurance, but because Jesus is holding them, it cannot be taken away. Number four, you've been given an unbreakable fellowship. An unbreakable fellowship. Look at this. God is faithful, verse nine, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. An unbreakable fellowship. There is never a moment in your life, no matter how much it seems this way, that you are alone, Christian, period. No matter what darkness comes your way, no matter what challenge you face, no matter how much it feels like you are alone. Jesus Christ sanctified you and then called you into the eternal fellowship of the Son. He's united himself with you. Again, the theological term here is union with Christ. That's a historic term. It means that he has made himself one with you. He's deposited the Holy Spirit into your heart. This is your identity. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. See, this is Bible. This is why we need the Bible because in the day-to-day run of life, when you're facing all the challenges you face and the hardship and the conflict and the relational conflict, the rocks take up your vision and sometimes all you can see is the rock in front of you, the challenge in front of you, the, the cultural issue in front of you, the relational breakage in front of you, the, the marriage conflict in front of you, whatever the rock is. And Paul roots us. He says, okay, the rock's there. I see it too. I get it. There's a rock. I'm going to spend a bunch of chapters dealing with the rock, okay? But let's start here. You've been sanctified. You're a saint. Get your head on straight for a second. See the world through the right lens. You are in fellowship with the Son, and it cannot be taken away from you. That's who you are. If I could summarize all of this in one way, he's saying define yourself radically as one loved by God. 
if, if you define yourself radically, overwhelmingly, every day as one who has been loved by God, with the love of God, not like human love, it's perfect love. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. If you define yourself radically by the love of God, everything about you will change. The world around us wants to trick us and deceive us to define ourselves by any and every other way. Define yourself by how you look. Define yourself by what you achieve. Define yourself by how macho you are or how pretty you are. Define yourself by how much money you make, by how many degrees you've earned, by, by who your friends are, by who you know. Define yourself by, your, by how many likes you get on your next social media post. Define yourself by the type of jewelry you wear, the type of clothes you wear, the type of shoes you wear. Define yourself by the, by the vacations you take. That's the biggest one right now. Define yourself by the adventures you get to go on. Define yourself as a gritty, overwhelming person. You got what it takes. You can play with the best of them. You're as tough as it comes. You rely on any of those identities, you will fall. And that is not your primary identity. You're believing in illusion. Because if you're a follower of Christ, you have an identity that, that, that makes every other one of those identities seem like a, like a child's game makes it seem like a foolish, trivial little child's game. You're loved by God. You've been given unmerited grace. You're, you've been called into an unbreakable fellowship. It's your identity. It's who you are. It can't be taken from you. Define yourself that way. And every conflict you will ever face in your life will have a new light to it. You'll find yourself behaving like Jesus, who, who when he was attacked, did he fight back? No, he had nothing to prove. Do you, do you see the power of this? You see, the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. You, you want to know how to, how to live a meek? That's not weakness. I keep coming back to this because God's doing this in my life right now. He's teaching me this, like, I feel like, for the first time. When you know who you are, you don't need to win a battle. It's already been won by Jesus. You, you, you're, you're on such a confident ground what, what are they going to do to you? What's the worst someone can do to you? Insult you? Hurt you? you? You've got an eternity secure in Christ Jesus. World, bring what you got. I'm standing good in the name of Jesus. Now, I'm going to very briefly go through this last bit because I want you to see it. We're going to get to this theme that Paul brings up in much later chapters, but I want you to see what he does right here. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Why? Because they have the same identity. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you. Notice how personal this letter is. I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus or Gaius. Roman names, by the way. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anybody. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We're gonna pause there today. What's the first thing he gets at? He's still in his introduction. He says, look, there's divisions among you, really? You're gonna play politics in the church? 
I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow, I follow Apollos. Your identity is in Christ. This is great instruction. Church, we just came through the most divisive two years I've ever seen. We were divided on everything and we argued about everything. I mean, let's just be really real about it. And even as I say it, some of you, the first thing you're gonna think right now is, yeah, but I was right. I'm telling you. And some of you, you're gonna be angry that I'm even bringing it up because you're there right now saying, yeah, but I was right. And I, I'm gonna say that clearly because that's what they thought too. We argued over vaccines and masks. We argued over what building to be in, how many chairs or how far apart the chairs should be. We argued about what to say about the, the Black Lives Matter protests. This stuff's important. I'm not, I'm not saying none of this is important. I'm saying that we were divided over it. We, we argued over what to do when, uh, when the city, when, when South Loop went up in riots. We argued over who should be, uh, what voices we should be listening to for making decisions in the church over the last two years. We argued over a whole lot more than that. Members who have been with us on a journey over the last year and a half, who saw a number of members leave over the last two years, we found plenty of reasons to argue over the last two years and divide. Not that it wasn't important. All of it were important conversations. What's Paul saying here? You're gonna argue with each other? You're gonna divide over these things? Do you know who you are? You are sanctified. You are saints. You have a unity in Christ that is so strong, it overwhelms the challenges you face. You gotta go into conflict knowing there's unity in Christ on these things, knowing there's brotherhood and a, a fellowship with Christ on these things. Look at this. Let, let, me, let me close this way. What's your identity? If you're a follower of Christ, you have been adopted into a family. And who's that family? Romans chapter eight says you were adopted as a child of God. What does that mean? You were adopted into a family that was not yours. I've got two adopted daughters. They've been adopted into a family that they were not born into, but they get all the rights of that family. They get the love of the father, the love of the mother. They get, they get everything, everything that comes to the family. Same as my biological daughter. It's all, they all get treated the same. Now why? What's the story you've been adopted into? Listen to this identity. What if you thought this way? There was a man named Abraham. Genesis, God chose him out of all the people on the planet to begin a nation that would bless the nations. You trace your roots to Abraham, adopted son and daughter. When was the last time you defined yourself this way? Abraham is where my story really begins. And Abraham had some children and God said that he would build a nation that would bless the nations of the world through Abraham. And then he had children and they had more children. Eventually, his children moved to Egypt where they were taken as slaves. This is a huge part of your story. This is your identity. Did you don't know this? Your families were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but God delivered them out of Egypt. This is your family story. This is your identity. God delivered them out of Egypt by, a man, by the hands of a man named Moses. And when, when, when the people of God, your family, were trapped between the Pharaoh of Egypt and his army and the Red Sea, God did something miraculous. He made a way through the sea that was impossible and God's people passed through, but the enemies of God got captured in the Red Sea. Your family was delivered by mighty miracles through the Red Sea. They spent years wandering through the desert, but then they eventually, they'd been given this hope of a promised land, 
And God gave them the, the nation of Israel, the land of Israel that is still Israel to this day. And he gave them a land and he raised up a king, a man named King David. And he sent prophets to them over and over again saying, one day I'm going to send a Messiah, one who will deal with the problem of sin. This is your story. This is who you are. That's your family. He sent prophet after prophet. Why? Because he loved them. He chased after your family. He wouldn't let them wander too far. And then one day the Messiah came. And he came for you, Christian. He came to forgive your sin. He came to bury it. And then he, he was crucified on a cross. But your Messiah, he didn't stay dead because even death didn't have power over him. He resurrected from the grave. He defeated death. And he guaranteed that you too will defeat death. And he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for you. That's your identity. That's the family you've been invited into. Stand on that identity. Don't ever forget it. Cling to it. That's your strength no matter what you come across in this life. Identify as a follower of Christ first and foremost. Let's pray. What we're gonna do right now as the band comes up we kick off this sermon series in 1 Corinthians. We're going to have a moment. The band's going to lead us in two worship songs. And I suspect as we begin this journey through 1 Corinthians today that some of us have forgotten and lost sight of that primary identity. Maybe even for some of you it might be new if I trace your journey as a Christian back to Abraham and to Moses and the prophets. It's your family. This is your heritage. It's who you are. And what I want to do is create a little space for us as the band leads us right now, just for about eight, nine minutes or so. Enough space for you to ask the Lord to refocus your sense of who you are. Some of us have been identifying in a whole lot of different ways and identifying with all these different parts of our story that aren't not important. They're just not the main thing. You're a saint. You've been sanctified. Let me invite you to stand up as we begin our time of worship together. I'm gonna invite you to do whatever you need to do right now. If you need to sing out loud the songs with us, sing it. But all the while, I want you to have a posture of prayer that is God, focus me. Nine months through 1 Corinthians, build my identity so firmly on the love of Christ that it can never be shaken. God, we give this time to you right now as we worship, as we close our service out with a few songs. Have your way with us. We wanna know what it means to to, to live out this greeting from Paul where we so identify with who we are in Christ that no matter what comes our way, it, it's just who we are. It, it's who we see ourselves as. It's who we see each other as. That we would not settle for division and, and divisiveness, but we, we, would, we would overcome every bit of bitterness, every bit of disgruntledness out of a place of who we are in Jesus and who our brothers and sisters are in Christ. God, do that work even right now, I pray. Jesus' name.